Esther chapter 9, verses 29, all the way through chapter 10, verse 3. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 787. All right. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Thus ends our reading of God's sufficient word. May all who hear it know the one who works for their good. Well, today we end our study through the book of Esther. But before we fully step out of that sea, I want us to turn around just for a moment so we can gain a full view of the waters that we have tread. When we began this journey, I mentioned to you that Esther was a unique book in a couple of ways. First is that the book is titled after a woman. And only one other book of the Bible does this. And we saw how important that woman was towards the redemption of her people. Second, and, and even more peculiar, is that Esther is the only book in the Bible that doesn't reference God anywhere. Not by name, nor by title. In fact, religion isn't even mentioned, though there is the slightest hint of religion as the practices of fasting and casting lots briefly show their head. This author had hidden God's name for a reason, to heighten his message that God is providentially working in history to rescue his people. He is that unseen force placing all the dominoes in their particular order before they come tumbling down. In other words, there are times when God only uses ordinary means to accomplish his will. And if you recall, I also mentioned that this story of Esther, it works on many different levels. There is a, the shallow end of the lake where the historical facts rise to the surface, 
We read about banquets and marriages and the plots of wicked men and the honoring of heroes. And while these events really did take place, they are just small parts to a bigger story. And as we waded deeper, we found that a a greater story existed underneath. A A tale where one could grasp God's purposes in allowing these historical events to take place as he fulfilled his promise to rescue his people from exile and eventually return them to the promised land. And finally, as we swam out further, past the point of where our toes could touch, we saw the types and the shadows of the greatest story of all. In many ways, Esther points us to that grand meta-narrative of man's fall into sin and of God's redemptive work through his son, Jesus, upon the cross. Hopefully, it was at this deeper level that you anchored yourself. For it was there that the voice of this supposedly absent God spoke to us the loudest. And now, as we, as we look back and we gaze upon all these events, we see that they had a greater purpose than what had first seemed apparent. For example, the fact that Esther became queen due, due to another queen's disobedience, nobody saw that coming. And nobody knew God's purpose as it was happening. Esther, she didn't think to herself, hmm, maybe if I become queen, I can one day rescue my people from destruction. No. No. Most most likely, that, that position was either forced upon her or she had sought it out for her own personal gain. And when, when Mordecai proved his loyalty to the king by foiling the assassination attempt upon Xerxes, he, w- he wasn't thinking to himself, hmm, this will one day come in handy. It, it will provide as useful leverage that will save my life and, and the lives of my people. No, he wasn't thinking that at all. Odds are that Mordecai was just a loyal subject. And he probably also thought about how this show of devotion would endear him to the king and he could possibly be rewarded. Yet when things did come to a head, when the evil plot of their enemy Haman was finally revealed, both Esther and Mordecai had to make choices. God had set this stage of of his dramatic rescue, yet they had to decide whether or not they would play their part. And so we heard Mordecai utter these famous words to Esther as as she was wavering. Look at Esther 4, verses 13 and 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's response? 
I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It was through the choices of these two individuals that God had saved thousands upon thousands of Jews. Esther risked her life going before the king, but she exposed the wicked plot of Haman, and that man was executed. However, even though the enemy was dead, his evil still lived on. For Haman's decree was sealed with the king's signet ring, and therefore irrevocable. A new decree had to be written. One that would reverse the evil of the first. And so civil war ensued within the kingdom. And 75,000 of Haman's followers perished in a single day. God had brought about a triumphant victory for his people. And finally, finding relief from their enemies, the, the people of Israel, they broke out in an impromptu celebration, this festive time where they gave gifts of food to each other to remind them of the portion that God had given them. This, this became an annual event called Purim, and it is celebrated to this day. You see, Mordecai, he had letters sent out to all the provinces, establishing the 14th and the 15th of the month of Adar as days of feasting and joy, as a memorial of the portion that God had allotted them. Which brings us to the end of our story. Esther chapter 9, verses 29 through 32. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them. And as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. To strengthen Mordecai's command, Esther lent the full weight of her throne to this establishment of this new festival of Purim. Here we see something unique in this book. You see, Esther, she is not like the other women in the Bible that we read about. You think of women like Sarah and Hannah and even Mary. And what is their claim to fame? They became mothers. They had wombs that were barren Yet God blessed them with children. Esther is different. She's not commended because she gave birth, but for her royal position. What we see here in Esther is a fulfillment of that other role that God had given to Eve 
in Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. Look at those verses. So God created man in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. When God originally created Adam and Eve, they were not only to be fruitful and to increase in number, but they were to subdue the earth as well. They were to act as kings and queens. And now here, we, we see this in both Esther and Mordecai. We see these royal aspects of God's intent. Esther was a queen. And for all intents and purposes, Mordecai performed the duties of a king. He wore the signet ring of Xerxes. He acted on his behalf. What we see in these two is a sharing of power between male and female. There, there, there's not one that's domineering over the other. Instead, they work side by side to accomplish God's will. I mean, think about it. Neither of them had the power alone to rescue their people. Without Mordecai saving the king's life, there is no telling what would have happened to the Jews. And without Esther's bravery, when she approached the king, the, the Jews would not have gained such a great ally in Xerxes, helping them to defeat their enemies. The, the two of them, they, they worked in concert with one another. And that is why they were so successful. Neither one was trying to vie for power. Rather, they, they took it upon themselves to, to aid one another in doing God's will. Let's continue on with our story and look at the last three verses. Let's see what else we can discover. Esther chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." Now, in verses 1 and 2, the author is trying to finish off his story. This tax that Xerxes imposed was really a reminder to the people who had just fought a civil war that he was still in charge. It was, it was a king reasserting his authority over his people. And this reference to the annals of the kings of Media and Persia, it's, it's a literary device that, that the author uses here, demonstrating the authenticity of his words. He, he's basically saying, go look it up. It's all there in the records. That being said, it's, it's in this last sentence where we see our author's concluding thought on the matter. Mordecai the Jew was second 
and ranked to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Mordecai was a person who had achieved success in the secular world. He was second in command. But why was he held in such high esteem? Not because of his position, but because he worked for the good of his people. He spoke up for their welfare. Both Mordecai and Esther They are examples of individuals who use their worldly positions to advance God's agenda. They they thought not of themselves, but of their fellow Jews. God continues to work providentially through his people today. He has placed each one of you in a particular situation to grow his kingdom. Think about your position in life, whatever it may be. You could be a teacher influencing the hearts and the minds of our youth. You might be a doctor looking after the physical well-being of the people around you. Maybe you drive a bus or farm or build houses. Maybe you're a student. Perhaps you are an athlete. It it doesn't really matter where you are at in life. What matters is why God has placed you there. Many in the church today have this notion that a person must be called to the ministry to be a part of God's plan. That the, the only way to do spiritual work is to be a pastor or a missionary. Brothers, sisters, may we never think this. Neither Esther nor Mordecai held any priestly position, yet God chose to use them in his plan of salvation. Men and women who are called to serve in secular positions are are no less glorifying to God than those who are called to the clergy. Listen, my job as a pastor, is not to be the end-all, be-all of this church, as if I'm the only one who plays a part in the Great Commission. No. As a pastor, I'm to equip and to train you so that you can go out into the world and fulfill your calling in a Christian manner, whatever your role may be. So that the police officer can bring justice to our society. So that the the garbage man can keep our streets clean. So that mothers and fathers can raise their children in the ways of the Lord. And so that children learn to honor and respect their parents, even when the rules seem unfair. And so... Each and every one of you can be a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the church. God has his fingertips in every section of life. He is in the schools. He is in the office. He's at the fire station. He's in the hospital. He's even on the swim team. And believe it or not, he's even in the government. Dear friends, God has providentially placed each and every one of you in a vocation or a calling. And he's done that for a reason. You are to be salt. You are to be light to a lost world. And that's what our, our whole first scripture reading was all about. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is how the church should function. Being lights to a darkened world. As Martin Luther so poignantly pointed out when discussing the doctrine of vocation, he said this, God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. Yet even as hard as you try, you will at times fall short in this area as well. There will be days when your, your light is a, is a bit dim and, and your salt is a a little bland. You will go into your calling by, by the power of your own flesh rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is here that we can, we can learn from Esther and Mordecai as well. You see, they, they too were sinful. Esther had kept secrets from her husband. She, she never told, them, told him that she was a Jew until she had to. And even then, she hesitated when her own life was at risk. And, and Mordecai, he, he let his hatred for Haman get in the way of his obedience to the king, which, by the way, led to the near destruction of all the Jews. Yet God used both of them despite their sinful nature. And the Lord had humbled each of them as well. Mordecai donned sackcloth and ashes. And Esther, as she approached the king unsummoned, she was offering her life for her people. The point is this. God is bigger than your sins. He can, he can overcome your transgressions. If he has willed something to be done, it will be done. In the story of Esther, 
God was a director and not the actor. He worked behind the scenes to bring about his salvation. Yet this saga that we have read speaks of a greater one that happened roughly 500 years later. Only this time, God was the lead actor. It wasn't just through providence that he rescued his people. Instead, he became a man in the person of Jesus. He, he lived out his calling perfectly. He was a true light that gives light to every man. And the vocation that he took up, his calling, was that of a sacrificial lamb. He willingly went to the cross to die for your transgressions. It was, it was there that your sins were placed upon his shoulders. He bore the weight of the punishment that you deserve. And just as God was silent in the book of Esther, so too was he silent when Christ called out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated the enemies of his people, sin, death, and the devil. And since he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and now rules over his creation, he is fulfilling that kingly role. And all who repent and trust in him will find entrance into that eternal kingdom where they will feast at the table of that king in a never-ending celebration of the victory that he had brought them. This is your Jesus. This is your king. He did all of this for the good of his people. Repent of your selfish desires and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. And then go and be the salt. Be the light that God created you to be. And do it for the good of his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins and for your Holy Spirit who renews us, restoring us to our kingly and queenly positions. We ask now that you would aid us as we go out into your world as ambassadors for you. May we be the, the salt and, and the light to a lost generation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.